0: You know, America has a lot of names for itself. We like to call ourselves the land of opportunity, but we also like to call ourselves the land of the free. Yet the U.S. only makes up 5% of the world's population, but makes up over 25% of the world's prisoners. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world, yet we continue to tell ourselves that we are the land of opportunity, equality, and freedom, which is kind of ironic. Considering we, over, we have over like 2 million people that are in jail right now, And also considering that we only had 300,000 people in jail in 1972, all the way up to two million now, we can see that there's a huge problem with mass incarceration in this country. But not just of mass incarceration. We're going to be talking about how mass incarceration is another form of systemic racism in this country, and racism in general in this country that has been conformed, that has been twisted and turned, put on, a suit and tie to adapt to today's world. We're going to look at the war on drugs, which was really just a war on African American and Latino populations in our in our country. We're going to see how politics, how economics, how lobbying, and of course how mass incarceration has affected African American and Latino populations and has affected America in general. And ultimately what we we as... As a, as a people, we as a country, what we can do to mitigate the, these effects, how to solve this problem, and if there is even an end in sight. Hi, welcome to Dear Gen Z. Uh, my name is Sharon Lonnie, and I am the host for today's episode on mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and how America and its government has directly targeted African American Latino populations as a result of mass incarceration. So to really start this episode um, about mass incarceration and about the race relations between, uh, you know, black people and the U.S. government, we have to go all the way back to slavery, Um, which, you know, is a a pretty common theme and and it's a pretty common way to begin things. But actually, we're going to start at the end of slavery. We're going to start after the Civil War. And after the Thirteenth Amendment has been signed, oh, the Thirteenth Amendment—you know—finally, our country is coming back from you know hundreds of years of slavery, hundreds of years of oppression of innocent people, and now it is a jubilee, a celebration of 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 great of, of great policy and of great uh, progress. However, that that is not the case, because the Thirteenth Amendment, while it did abolish slavery, there is one clause. That I find, and that many people find, to be the cause for so much mass incarceration today, and for you know possibly um, the laws for segregation and Jim Crow. And here it is. So the the full Thirteenth Amendment is that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party uh, shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So. This basically means that there is no slavery within the U.S. unless, unless, it is as a punishment for a crime. As a punishment for a crime. So that little loophole has basically been embedded into our con. This is part of the Constitution of the United States of America. When people ask me, uh, you know, you know, Shay, oh, you talk about systemic racism and you talk about uh, and, and and institutionalized racism. What are some what are some examples of, of maybe what kind of legislation has has brought in systematic and and, and and institutionalized racism? And this is the exact thing that I point to, and it is the Thirteenth Amendment, where it is supposed to be a jubilee, a celebration, and it's supposed to outlaw, you know, something that was such a horrible part of our history, you know, slavery, but it gave birth to a new form of racism. And this new form of racism begins with uh, with actually the arts, and it begins with this movie called Birth of a Nation. And this is the first major motion picture film in America, so obviously it's going to be seen throughout the country. Presidents have watched this movie and have said that it was a, a great American classic, and it's, you know, one of the best American, you know, not, not one of the best American films, but one of the, the classic American, American films. But Birth of a Nation is is extremely, like, it's extremely racist. Even though it was the first motion picture movie, it depicts black people with, first of all, blackface. And second of all, it, it portrays African-American men as predators. It, it, it basically shows uh, African-American men being, uh, being basically like animals, you know, chasing after white women, and basically creating this narrative that not only are, you know, black people less than human they are not human at all and so basically making that 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 notion that idealization that that black people are there to victimize white women and things like that has continued throughout american history until you know this almost this very day i mean you look at the case of emmettilla you look at the case of of the of the new york uh, of the new york uh, i meant i meant the, the central park jogger case it has been shown time and time and again that America, the U.S. government, and society views black males as, uh, as, as threats to white women and to white people. And it all starts from this movie, Birth of a Nation. And it continues, it continues throughout Reconstruction. You know, we've all learned in history, you know, Reconstruction was a time where after the Civil War, you know, people are trying to be on the mend. They're trying to mend the South together. They're trying to do all this. Right. But we also learned that the southern economy is devastated by the Civil War because they lose, you know, about like almost all of their workforce. Right. Which is just slaves. And so basically, by putting this little 13th Amendment and putting this small little clause in it, they found a loophole that they can that black people can still be slaves if they are criminals. If they are criminals, they can still be enslaved. They can still be enslaved by the government. They can be enslaved by other people. And that is still going on today. But at that time, Southerners saw that as an opportunity to, to, to do more, to to continue uh, the practice of slavery and to continue the, the, the practice of indentured, indentured slavery, basically like that. But ultimately, Black people and African-American males are starting to get into the government. They're starting to win uh, you know, mayor elections. They're starting to become maybe like low-level congressmen, things like that. This is all during Reconstruction. This is just after the Civil War. But this all ends. This all ends when racism evolves another step. Institutionalized racism evolves another step. Systemic racism evolves another step. And it goes into Jim Crow and segregation laws. Now, Jim Crow and segregation laws They've been there since 1870, I think, 18, 1877. They started 1877, and they've gone up till about the late 20th century, I would say. So, in that time, you know, everyone everyone kind of knows what happens with Jim Crow and segregation. We all know what happens, but what I want to get into is the leaders during this time of Jim Crow and segregation. More specifically, I want to look at the presidencies of Nixon, Reagan, and Bill Clinton. All three of those people are who I'm gonna talk about because those three relate most to mass incarceration and what goes on with mass incarceration today, the prison system, and how you know a, a huge amount of disproportionately black people get thrown into jail compared to white people. So we're gonna start with uh, with Richard Nixon. Now, Richard Nixon was a president who ran on the ideas of law and order and he appealed to the Southerners through the Southern Strategy. The Southern Strategy was basically a method to which he would favor towards the people who would vote for him most likely, which were the Southerners. And he also wanted to promote law and order as many people thought that America needed more law and order for one reason, and that was drugs. More specifically, they were talking about two different types of drugs. One was cocaine, and the second, the second was crack cocaine. And crack cocaine is the devil of all of these drugs that were um, that were going on at this time, because during this time, cocaine was the expensive drug, it was the white man's drug, and it was the drug of the higher class, while crack cocaine was smokable cocaine. Cocaine is a powder, crack you can smoke, right? Crack was mixed in with a lot of different substances to make it cheaper and uh, to make it more available, and this basically ate up a lot of black and Latino communities for reasons because it was cheaper and it was more widely spread. Now while this is a huge problem in, in America with, with drugs at this time during the nineteen seventies, Nixon runs on the idea of something very cynical. He ran on these ideas that were enforced by these these narrations of, of black people being being horrible people being being rapists, being gang members, and he basically enforced something called law and order. Law and order. Law and order. He was the law and order candidate, and that meant that he was going to um, basically enforce, you know, harsh policies on people who who weren't white and who weren't rich. And these people were also happened to be, you know, white people in the South, and who also had these ideas that black people were less than them because of the segregation that was going on. Combine this with the war on drugs that is, a, that is, that is almost a, an epidemic at this point in America, and you get an administration who just wants to throw black people in jail.
1: The Nixon administration official has admitted that the war on drugs is all about throwing black people in jail. He said, quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt this those communities.
0: We could arrest their leaders, raid racism, their homes, break up their meetings, slavery, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we America, were lying about the, the drugs? Of, of course we because did. it shows how our own president, our own former president, Nixon, used the Southern strategy, used the idealization of black people being criminals rapists, lower than humans, segregated people, in order to gain the Southern vote. And if you guys don't understand that, here is another piece of evidence that I think explains it way better. This is Lee Atwater, one of Richard Nixon's closest advisors, talking about what the Southern strategy means. This was caught on tape, and he didn't mean for it to be caught on tape, but I think this explains what I'm talking about, about the evolution of 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 discrimination and of racism, take a listen. Don't want to me on this. Right, want this.
1: You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire, so you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things and the byproduct
0: of them is blacks get hurt worse than white blacks get hurt worse than whites racism is starting to evolve in the 1970s from just outright racism calling black people the n-word calling them slaves calling them animals and now it has transitioned into arresting them disproportionately compared to whites Demonizing their communities through the spread of drugs, through the cut of 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 healthcare, of you know social services that these communities need, these black communities and Latino communities and lower socioeconomic communities didn't just pop up from anywhere. These were communities. That were from the start meant to be impoverished. Black people didn't just land in Chicago, they didn't just land in Compton, they didn't just land in Philadelphia, they didn't land in just Birmingham, Alabama. They landed in these places where they were meant to be impoverished, they were meant to be oppressed, and they were meant to be oppressed not only by people just being outright racist to them, but the government disproportionately being racist towards them as well. And that's what has continued to be the problem in this generation from the 1970s until uh, the, the late 1990s. And and even today with the, the themes of, of police brutality and police presence in, in these areas more than, more than often, than not, and economic and social and educational inequality, but that's another story. We're talking about the mass incarceration and taking these communities and making sure that they don't come out Of poverty, And the way you do that, the way you do that is through drugs, it is through poisoning these communities, it is through not giving them a way out, cutting their social services, because again, Nixon, Republican, Reagan after that, Republican too, they're cutting, they're making the government smaller, which means they're spending less money, which means that these people in these impoverished communities are getting less money in order to get out of the situation they are already in right? So, moving on from Nixon, we are going into Reagan. Reagan is the 80s, and now Reagan is all about cutting. He is going to cut and cut and cut. He's going to cut, basically, as I've said before, the small government. He's going he's to cut social services. He's going to cut healthcare. He's going to cut education. He's going to cut all these things, and all these things lead to what? All these things lead to people in the community getting desperate. They don't have the support they once had from the government, they don't have the support from the people that they're around and they're, they're, they're in these impoverished communities. What do they do? They don't have education, what do they do? You're gonna turn to drugs, you're gonna turn to crime, you're gonna turn to violence, and that's where Reagan takes advantage of these people. That's where we start to see the themes of mass incarceration being truly exploited in order to uh, to make sure that you know black people go to jail and black males especially go to jail. As of now, in the sense that we're in the Reagan presidency, 1970, the prison population was around 300,000 people. It is now, in 1980 to 1985, 759,000. In a matter of 15 years, the prison population has doubled. And that is because racism has now switched from being segregation, and it has switched from being um, from being outright racism. Now, it is turning into systemic racism and institutionalized racism. Systemic racism, institutionalized racism. Prisons are the institutions of the government that are oppressing the black males at this time. 1990, there are one million people in prison. And most of these are black people, Latino people, people of low socioeconomic status. All because we wanted to start a war on drugs but that was not really the point, was it? The point of the war on drugs was to be a war on the African American population and racism evolving into mass incarceration in which we see the effects of that today. And the last point, the last president, Bill Clinton. Not a Republican, a Democrat, but a Democrat who realized that putting law and order first by putting people in prison at a higher rate than other people in his in his in his presidential campaign race that would get him the presidency he understood that the democrats could not suffer another loss because they had two or three straight republican presidents the democrats could not lose again and that's why they believed in bill clinton because bill clinton wanted law and order most out of everyone and when i mean law and order you know what I mean by law and order, as we've seen through Nixon and Reagan. Law and order means putting more black people, more Latino people in prison. And that's exactly what he did. Bill Clinton, as soon as he comes to office, he signs 1994 bill. He signs this bill that basically gives different things. One thing is mandatory minimums. And these mandatory minimums are extremely important and vital to why mass incarceration still lives on today. It is basically saying that mandatory minimums are the are basically minimum sentences that judges have to give people who are convicted of a crime. So what this means is that judges and the jury, which is possibly the most neutral part of our whole government has been compromised to make sure that they give a mandatory minimum sentencing. So let's say, that I was dealing drugs as a 17 year old and I got caught and I got sent to jury or whatever and I was found guilty. They could not lower my sentence just because I'm a child. They can't lower my sentence because maybe I came from a broken home. They don't have that interpretation. They can't enforce the law. They cannot enforce the law appropriately because while no one is above or below the law, there are still times where the law can be bent in different ways because of the circumstances of some person. If a person who is in a broken home, who is impoverished, commits a crime, he should not be punished for that because he is impoverished or because he is black or because he has he comes from a broken home or something like that. But Bill Clinton's mandatory minimums discards that right from the judge and the jury to have that interpretation, to have that sympathy. They don't. They have to have a mandatory minimum of how many years people can spend in jail. And this is the key point. Crack cocaine mandatory sentencing. Mandatory sentencing for crack cocaine of one ounce is equal to a hundred ounces of cocaine. Cocaine is a has a lower mandatory sentence than crack. And that is the biggest point here, and that is because the difference between crack cocaine and cocaine, like we've gone over in the past, is that crack cocaine was mostly used by black and Latino citizens, while cocaine was used by white and rich people. You see the difference here. White people are getting punished less than black people and Latino people. Poor people are getting punished more for, 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 the, for, for less amount of crimes than, than white people are. This is just enforced by the Clinton administration again and again. Three strikes law, three strikes and you're out, right? In baseball, it's the same thing with the goddamn government. Three strikes, three offenses, and you're gone for life. And that is uh, is is not even doesn't make any sense because this obviously disproportionately affects you know you know black people who are who are more likely to commit crimes because they are impoverished because they've been oppressed for so long, and it shows that 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 racism is slowly evolving into into something that is a part of our government not just socially not just in films and not just in in in, 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 in everyday society it is in our government it is in our constitution it is it is in our presidencies and as a result by two thousand the twenty first century two million people are in jail two million 1990, 1 million, two million. We've We imprisoned 1 million people in 10 years because of these policies, because our government chooses to put emphasis of law and order on its most vulnerable citizens by using these tactics in order to put people in jail, to keep people impoverished and to keep their votes and their voters and their lobbyists happy. And keep their lobbyists happy. And that is the bottom line for a lot of the problems here today. If you listen to my NRA episode, I talk a little bit or a lot about lobbying. But in this episode, I will also talk about lobbying a lot. And um, one of the biggest lobbying companies, and one of the worst lobbying companies, in my opinion, is for mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is not only a social phenomenon, is not only a term coined by many people to represent the the institutionalized and systemic racism for today, but it is also used to lobby the government by using big money in order to to boost the profits of many corporations that people use every single day. This is a story of Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old boy Like many of you watching this or listening to this video right now, you're the same age as this kid. And he was brutally killed by a white man who said he looked quote unquote suspicious. Just listen to this tape. An armed neighborhood watch leader saw Martin walking inside a gated subdivision near Orlando. He thought
1: the 17 year old looked suspicious. He's got his hand in his waistband. Okay. And he's a blackmailer. These assholes, they always get away. Are you following him? Yeah. Okay, we don't need you to do uh, that. Uh, so you think he's yelling help? Yes. All right, what is your answer on the Tonight, a deadly shooting in Sanford. Police have the gun, they've got the shooter, but they have not arrested him. George Zimmerman armed with a gun followed this quote unquote suspicious kid after the dispatcher told him not to. They ended up on the ground in a fight and George Zimmerman shot and killed Trayvon Martin. The police could not arrest Zimmerman because of this Florida law called Stand Your Ground which says you can kill someone if you feel threatened even though it was Zimmerman who had pursued Martin throughout the neighborhood with a gun. Mr. Zimmerman felt that he, in uh, self-defense, needed to to fire his weapon. Not only was he not arrested after the killing, but in court, Zimmerman actually pleaded self-defense and got off under the Stand Your Ground law. We, the jury, find George Zimmerman not guilty. The Stand Your Ground law that was passed in Florida played a huge role in the Trayvon Martin tragedy, and this really ignited the movement that we see today. The Trayvon Martin's death,
0: Florida's Stand your Ground law came into the spotlight. How did this law not only get in place in Florida, but around the country? And all the fingers kept pointing back to Alec. If that story doesn't put a fire under, under your heart or, or, or make you feel like there is some sort of inequality in America today, you're, you're just in denial because that, that is an example. Of, of the inequality and of, of, of the perception that I was talking about, the, the narration, the ideology of, of black males being criminals, of being people that are less than human. And you're seeing it on display right here in the 21st century. America has never come back from its racist roots because we've never dealt with them. We've chosen to continue to oppress black people but just in different ways. Now, if you look back at that video, there is one thing that I want to expand upon a lot, which is the company that that reporter mentioned in, in, in the last part of it, which is ALEC. ALEC is a corporation uh, that basically goes in between corporations and Uh, And and, and congressmen and, and people, government officials, basically. So, it's a segue between these corporations and these people that are in office. And this is where the conflict of interest happens. Because ALEC takes what the corporations need, what they want, and they explain that to these government officials. These government officials are in the interest of corporations. What are corporations in the interest of? not the people, money, they're the interest of money. That stand your ground law that was talked about so much during that Trayvon Martin shooting, that's an ALEC law. The three strikes rule that we went over with Bill Clinton, that's an ALEC law. The mandatory minimums that put so many black people in prison because of the, of the higher mandatory sentencing for crack versus cocaine, that is an ALEC law. All of these laws are in the interest of corporations that we support as Americans every single day. Walmart, State Farm, all of these corporations, these big corporations that make money off of people going into jail obviously don't want to write legislation that creates prison reform because they want more people in jail. They make money off of people going to jail. And how do they do that? They use it through lobbying, through millions of dollars, paying these legislators, paying these people millions of dollars to make bills for them so that they can continue to make money and prosper off of mass incarceration. So it comes full circle. We've gone from slavery where that was outright racism, outright human indignity, to the Reconstruction. Making that narration, that ideology of black people being rapists, being criminals, and being bad people in society, and going into segregation, where they're making that into legislation, where they're making that people can't get the same rights, they can't get a job, they can't get water at the same fountain as white people, they can't get the same education, they can't get the same anything as white people, and now it's happening again. It's happening again because of people. When you go to jail, you lose everything. Life insurance, you can't get it. A job, you can't get it. You want to get a loan for your small business, you can't get that. Your child can't see you anymore because you can't get that. You can't get it. And it's ridiculous to see that jail time, even a little bit of jail time, can ruin your whole entire life. And you don't get the same rights as every single other American citizen once you're done doing your time. Once you're done doing your time in jail, that is not the end of your sentence. Every sentence is a lifetime sentence in America because that record stays with you forever, You are so limited in what you can do. And if you're impoverished and you go to jail, once you come out, you cannot get out of poverty. And that is how America stays oppressing black, Latino, and lower socioeconomic status people through mass incarceration. They know they have to oppress people at the bottom to keep the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And that's how they do it. That's how it's been since the beginning of slavery. That's how it's it's been since the beginning of segregation. That's how it's been since the war on drugs. It is all the same goal, but a different method. And that is why, uh, that is what I hope that you get out of this episode. You start to realize, you start to make connections between these events. They're not so mutually exclusive. Slavery, segregation, reconstruction, war on drugs, mass incarceration, they're all forms of systemic, institutionalized, and social racism just in different aspects. They're all the same thing. They're all oppressing the same people, African American people. So when someone asks you, well, slavery ended, you know, 2 200 300 years ago why are people why are black people still complaining that they're oppressed and this is it racism has never stopped it has just been put on a suit and tie it has just been evolved to adapt to the modern era black men make up 6.5 of the US population 6.5% of the US population but they make up over 40% of the US prison population more black people are in prisons than there were slaves in the 1850s and this is the reason the continued racism not just the not just the progressive you know oh we you know we've made steps to counter racism the continued racism that black people experience today and this is just one of the ways mass incarceration there's police brutality There's bail money that we haven't even gotten into that we won't get into because this episode is going to be way too long if we include that. But all these things, they all culminate into the oppression of black people. And this is not just an episode on why black people are oppressed. This is an episode on how the U.S. government has done this. So, like, methodically thought out. President after president after president Obama was the only president to visit a jail in his time in presidency the only president As a US government who's who is signing a methodical social contract with its people to keep their rights To make sure that they can pursue a life of of liberty pursuit of happiness all that shit It starts with helping the most vulnerable people in society. And our government does the opposite of that, as shown through so many different examples. And so if the US government can't help us, who can? It's us, it's the, pe- the people, not just black people, people, everyone around us. That is who can change the status quo movements like the civil rights movement who have made some strides who ended segregation but now the work is not done the work is far from over and yes maybe this one little podcast episode that you know maybe a hundred people are going to listen to isn't shit but if you share enough if you talk about it enough people will listen and that is the key. And that is what brings change. And that is what people have to be passionate about. And if not, then who else? Who else? Thank you guys for listening. This is the end of the podcast. Uh, I appreciate you guys listening and I hope you guys have a great day. Make sure you share this podcast with your friends. Post it on social media. And I hope this podcast has, has made you think about something I mean, you've learned something and, and you can take home and process this and you can maybe talk about it with someone and, and play your part in making America a better place.